Well, I'd like to uh, thank everyone uh, for the kindness that has been shown to Paul and I during the course of this week, for the uh, wonderful hospitality that has uh, been extended to us, and uh, uh, for some that tried to get us but couldn't get us because we were booked. And uh, so I really do appreciate all the kindness that has been shown. I'm also thankful for answered prayer this week. Um, I certainly prayed before coming that Brother Rex and I would speak as one voice. And the reason I did that is because many years ago I was involved in a conference and the speaker, who will remain nameless, and I didn't agree on a single thing. It seemed like every message we were contradicting each other. And the whole uh, uh, conversation uh, after every message was, the preachers don't agree. (laughs) And I don't think you could say that about this week. Uh, So the Lord has allowed us to speak with one voice, and uh, we praise the Lord for that. Well, I'd like you to turn with me, please, to, and I realize it's a big jump to go from chapter 4 to chapter 13. <laughs> uh, and uh, I just want to say this, that if you, uh, uh, your curiosity has been piqued uh, about the book of Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 13.7 is where we're going to be reading from, I want to just throw out a couple of uh, resources that you might want to invest in uh, if you'd like to study more. Uh, David Barron, uh, B-A-R-O-N, was a converted Jewish rabbi. And uh, he wrote a commentary on the visions and prophecies of Zechariah. And if you have to sell your shirt to buy it, do so. It is absolutely outstanding. By the way, anything that David Barron wrote is worth owning in your library. Uh, so that's a, that was a big help to me in uh, studying. I also love drinking at the old wells. And uh, I particularly love the old uh, exclusive Brethren writers. And you don't even have to buy a book. You can go to a website called stempublishing.com. STEM just stands for Sound Teaching Electronic Media. And you can get all the commentaries by uh, Edward Dennett on Zechariah just right there on, online. You can read them. You can download them for free if you want. Uh, William Kelly, uh, John Nelson Darby. C.A. Coates, all those F.B. Hole, tremendous stuff. I mean, it's a treasury. Uh, Tell you something, today we have absolutely no excuse of being ignorant of the Scriptures. Uh, By the way, Voices for Christ, voices, F-O-R, Christ.org. I think at last count I have 436 messages on there. I I don't know how many Rex has got on there, but I know this. There's over 55,000 messages from assembly conferences on that website for free downloads. So you could listen to quite a few between this now and next time uh, next year, right? Uh, Tremendous resources. And uh, there's quite a few on Zechariah. Not too many, but there's a few. So uh, again, I just encourage you to avail of some of these things. Well, Zechariah 13, I want to read verses 7 through 9, and uh, I'd like to think about this section as well as going into chapter 14 uh, to finish our time in the book. So verse 7 says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, 
and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold excuse me as gold is tried they shall call on my name and i will hear them i will say it is my people and they shall say the lord is my god and again we believe god will add a blessing to the reading of his precious word Zechariah mentions the crucifixion of Christ on two separate occasions. We mentioned one of them yesterday, uh, where uh, Zechariah 12.10 says, uh, concerning the Jewish people in the last days, that they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And in a very real sense, that emphasizes, if you like, the human side of Calvary. Now, I realize that the Jewish people didn't actually do the piercing. It was Roman soldiers that actually did that. But nevertheless, it was at the instigation of the Jewish people and particularly the Jewish leadership, wasn't it? It was the the leadership that were crying out and pressurizing Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And so the Romans uh, did that, but certainly responsibility lies certainly on the leadership of the Jewish nation at that time. And so there's the human side of the cross. And there was a, a human side to it, a human dimension. But there's also a divine side to the cross, isn't there? And I want to say that this verse, th- uh, verse 7, looks at the divine side of the cross. And I want you to notice how it begins with this word, awake. And the idea is that it seems that the sword that is mentioned here, I believe this sword is really referring, uh, it's used in Scripture, for instance, in in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 4. Let's just turn there, Romans 13, verse 4, where the sword is mentioned. Romans 13, 4 says this, uh, Speaking of human government, he is a minister of God to thee for good, But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. And so it's the idea of the sword of justice. The part of the purpose of government is to administer justice. And if somebody has done evil, the government are supposed to execute that person. Okay, that's one of the key verses for corporal punishment. Not the only one, but it certainly is. They bear not the sword in vain. And so the idea here is this, that the sword of divine justice that appears to have been sleeping, it appears to have been inactive. And then there's a command from from the angel of the Lord saying, awake my sword. This sword of divine justice that seems to have been asleep, it says, awake my sword. And then what does it say? Awake my sword against my shepherd. The sword of God's divine justice against sin and rebellion is about to fall on God's shepherd. We know who that is, don't we? It's the Lord Jesus. I am the good shepherd that laid down my life for the sheep. And so the idea is that Jehovah saw, this is the divine side of the cross. God was punishing Christ on account of sin and rebellion. Not his Because we can be clear uh, that the Lord Jesus not only did not sin, but could not sin. He was holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. He was perfect in every way. And so he is punished for sin and rebellion, but not his own. So whose rebellion and sin was he punished for? 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And the Lord Jesus was punished on Calvary's cross. The sword of divine justice against rebellion and sin, which should have fallen on us, fell on him. Isn't it great to end at the cross? (laughs) What a place to end. To be reminded once again of what our Lord Jesus endured on Calvary, not from the hands of men. Bad enough as that was, the beatings and the spittings and being nailed to a cross. But the deep agony of Calvary was in those three hours of darkness when he that knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I find it an amazing thing to think of the Lord Jesus. I think part of Gethsemane was this, that our Lord Jesus, the Bible is clear, it says that he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And the very thought of having the iniquity of us all laid upon him and being judged on our account was just horrific to his holy soul. I had a friend in uh, a Welshman. It's remarkable what the grace of God can do that an Englishman can have a friend who's a Welshman. Uh, we've been fighting each other for a long time. And, uh, but the grace of God is wonderful. But this brother, he uh, went to a very expensive private school in Wales. And uh, as the new boy in the school, they had an initiation ceremony that every new boy had to go through. They had a trough at the back of the cafeteria where all the leftover food was scraped in until it was full. And then a local pig farmer would come and collect it and feed it to his pigs. But every new boy had to experience baptism by immersion and have all that vile, rotten food heaped upon him. And he said he still has nightmares about that. Sin is horrible, isn't it? As Even as a sinner, sometimes I am so horrified by sin that I can't sleep. I remember one time I heard just a snippet on the radio about a man uh, in England who had done some horrendous things to his daughters. I didn't hear much. In fact, I turned the radio off as soon as I got the first. I turned it off. But I could not sleep that night thinking about the horrors of evil. And it so disturbed my spirit, I I, I still uh, think of it with horror. And yet here, here am I, a sinner, and if I find sin disturbing, what is the Lord Jesus, the one who loved righteousness and hates, what was it like for him to have the sin of us all laid upon him? And then to be punished, and when he was punished there, all of God's wrath and hatred against sin was poured out on him. It was was judgment without mercy. It was it was all of God's hatred over centuries against sin and rebellion, as it were, contracted into three hours and poured out on the Lord Jesus. You know when it says that his face was marred more than any man's? I don't think that was to do with the physical sufferings he endured. You see, uh, I I remember, I love Second World War history, and I've seen uh, 
film footage of some of the pilots that got caught in the cockpits of their planes and and the flames were just completely marring their features and then uh, they developed a lot of the plastic surgery trying to patch these guys up and 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 you talk about being marred more than any but they were hardly recognizable as human beings see it's not physical that we're talking about here See, the Lord Jesus is the only person that endured the full judgment of God against sin and came out the other side. No wonder he was marred more than any man. And so we read about this sword. We read about it uh, waking up after uh, centuries, as it were, of silence where God winked at sin, but no longer he's dealing with it in the person of his son. Against, he says, the man that is my fellow. What a tremendous verse. You know what you've got there? You've got both deity and humanity in one verse. See, the Lord Jesus clearly was a man. You'd have walked down the street in Jerusalem and you'd have passed the Lord Jesus. He looked just like a man. Right? He was, a, he was fully man. Sin apart, but he was a man. But then he says, Jehovah says, a man that is my fellow, my, my companion. You know, when we, we have somebody and we say, he's my fellow, we've got people who are, you know, uh, I, uh, my best friend is Scott DeGraff. He's my fellow. And what it means, well, we agree on a lot of things. We walk together. We enjoy each other. We're, we're great friends, right? But we're, we're kind of equal. That's the idea. For any human being to call Jehovah his fellow... That's kind of a, you know, sometimes we get a bit buddy-buddy, don't we, when we talk about, you know, it's interesting that he, he is not afraid to be called our brethren. It's okay to come that way, but we don't want to go the other way, do we? We need to recognize that he still is a God who is holy, holy, holy. But for the Lord Jesus here to be likened as Jehovah's fellow is a, a statement of equality. He is one who is equal with God. And he says that again and again, doesn't he? I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we've got one who is fully man and who is fully God and who is enduring the sword of eternal justice against himself. Smite the shepherd, the sheep shall be scattered. Matthew twenty six thirty one. the Lord Jesus quotes that very verse, recognizing what would happen to his followers when he was crucified. And so he used that very scripture, quotes directly from Zechariah 13 and verse 7. And then it says this, And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. It's interesting that he he was rejected by the nation as a whole. But within the nation, there was a little flock. There were those that did believe his claims. Peter, remember, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And he said, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am, Peter? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And see, there were those that recognized the claims. There, there were a little flock. There were 120 at the end of three and a half years of the most powerful ministry the world has ever seen. And there's 120 people. And so what we find is that because the nation rejected him, he turned to this little flock, this remnant. 
And of course, they were scattered at the time of the crucifixion, but he went after them. He gathered them again together. And over those 40 days of post-resurrection appearances, as it were, he poured his life into these. And they would be the beginning of what we know as the church of the Lord Jesus. Then we're going to kind of jump, and this often happens in Old Testament prophecy. We jump from the cross, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves in the end times. And it's amazing how that happens in prophecy. We just kind of, we jump from one thing to another. And so he says in verse 8, It shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. We talked yesterday about including the ancient people of God in your prayers. Today's the Sabbath day for Israel. We need to pray for them that they'll enter into their rest because if they don't enter into their rest before some of the things Rex has been talking about, before the rapture of the church, they are going to go through a period in human history that the Lord Jesus described as the worst period of human history. He says there's never been a time like it before or afterwards. Now, again, in my study of history, and I'm not a history major, I just love history. So for relaxation, some people climb uh, Half Dome. I read history books. And I've read many books on the Holocaust. I do it for several reasons. One, it gets me mad at evolution because I don't think the Holocaust could have happened without the theory of evolution. It was taking evolution to its logical conclusion. And if, if evolution is true, and the survival of the fittest and superior species putting down inferior, that's how the Germans viewed every other race, right? We're the Aryan and the rest are, are untermenschen, they're, they're subhuman. Actually, Hitler was doing the world a favor, if that's right, right? Getting rid of anything that was inferior. Now, I'm telling you that that is abominable teaching. But nevertheless, I read about the Holocaust, and it's hard for me to imagine how could it be worse than that. I'll be honest with you. I read some of those things, and again, you talk about disturbing stuff. And you you find, well, how could it ever be worse than that? Well, he says here, two-thirds of the Jews will be wiped out. Uh, God is going to open a way for them all to be restored to the land in the last days. Actually, I believe it will... Uh, it will occur at the Feast of Trumpets. And uh, the trumpet will be connected with the regathering of the elect nation from the four winds of heaven. And they will all, and, and I believe Antichrist will cooperate. He'll say, yes, get them all together in one place. Then we can bring about the final solution. And so it says that they will come into the land And it says that, and of course we know from Revelation 12 that that Satan realizes his time is short and and he is going to persecute the Jewish people and two-thirds of them will be wiped out. And he says even the third that are left will go through the furnace of affliction. We see that in the final verse, don't we? It says, and I will bring the third part through the fire. And will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They are going to go through a furnace of affliction. 
when you look at the end times, it's kind of an interesting thing because you're going to see several things happening. You are going to see this persecution. I think the persecution will come because, because the Babylonian captivity did cure the nation of Israel from idolatry. They've not had a problem with that since. And you see, when, as Rex talked about, the man of sin declaring himself to be, be God in the temple of God in the middle of the tribulation period, then there'll be an image made of the man of sin. And people will be compelled to bow down and worship this image. And at that point, even though the Jewish people have made a covenant with death, they've signed this peace deal uh, for seven years, at that point they'll recognize who this man of sin is. And they will not bow. And the Lord Jesus says, when you see that abomination of desolation, what do you do? You that are in Jerusalem, flee to the mountains, right? Get out of there. Pray your flights not on the Sabbath day. Pray that you're not with child in that day, right? In other words, you need to be able to get out of there and move quickly. Because the Antichrist will be mad, just like when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to the image. And they will go through the furnace of affliction. And yet, they will be preserved, this one-third. And not only will they be preserved, they'll be purified. Uh, All the things, the false philosophies that they've embraced. Right now, it's not idolatry in Israel that's a problem. It's secularism and secular philosophy. They're back in the land, but not, uh, not religious. I know they have a lot of religious influence because their political system is so, uh, so many parties and they can't ever form a majority. And often the religious party holds the cards to kind of make things happen. But generally, they're not a religious people. <clears throat> and so they'll be purified and all their foolish ideas of Marxism and evolution and all this nonsense... Well, it'll be purged out of them. And they'll be purified like silver and like gold. And it says, they shall call on my name. We said that yesterday, didn't we? We talked about how uh, when they're surrounded by enemies, when all hope is lost, where there's nowhere else to turn, they'll cry out and they'll say, Lord, save us. Save now. They did it once before. You know what that word means? Hosanna. Hosanna, save now. And of course, we saw in Zechariah 12 that God will indeed hear their cry and will send a savior for them. The first savior that he sent to Calvary will be sent again. And they will look on him whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And it says, I will hear them and I will say, it is my people. Once again, this nation of Israel will be God's people. God has a future for Israel, doesn't he? To believe in replacement theology, you're just not reading your Bible. I'm sorry, you're just not reading it. It's so evident that God has a future plan for Israel. And so he says, they'll be my people. 
and they shall say, The Lord is my God. In fact, remember Zechariah when it says in chapter 12, verse 10, They shall look on him whom they've pierced. Remember there was a Jewish man that said, Unless I see the wounds in his hands and his side, he says, I will not believe. Well, when they look on him whom they've pierced, they will be like Thomas. And you know what they'll say? They will say, my Lord and my God. And it'll be to the Lord Jesus that they say that. What a day that's going to be. And it's going to happen. So then we move into chapter 14. And as I say, we're moving swiftly in prophetic thinking here. He says, Behold, behold the day of the Lord come, and thy spoil, verse 1, shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I'll gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. And the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity. The residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. In verse 4, what a beautiful verse. We've been thinking about the Mount of Olives already in our first session. And his feet. Those feet that were nailed. His feet. His feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives. The very feet that left the Mount of Olives and ascended into heaven. And when they looked up gazing as he ascended into heaven, the angel said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing into heaven? This same Jesus shall so come again in like manner as you have seen him go. And the Lord Jesus will descend to the Mount of Olives. And by the way, he will go into Jerusalem via the east gate. (laughs) He will. Ezekiel tells us that. But we see that his feet will stand, and then uh, there will be a tremendous earthquake. The Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof. And what's going to happen, actually, is this, that the whole topography of the land of Israel is going to be changed. As we prepare our way for the millennial kingdom, what's going to happen is what was prophesied back in Isaiah 40. Now, let's just go back there to Isaiah chapter 40. By the way, I find it kind of interesting, uh, while you're turning there, it's kind of interesting to me how uh, when I talk about Zechariah, most people here said, oh, we're going to be studying the book of Zechariah. Right? That's, what, that's the American pronunciation. I don't know how you can get za out of Z. You know? But then we talk about Isaiah, and you say Isaiah. Winston Churchill was right, you know, where two people separated by a common language. Isaiah 40, verse 4 and 5, it says this, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, the rough places plain, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And in a very real sense, that's going to happen. The valleys are going to be exalted, the mountains are going to be made low, and the land is going to be made a plain. And the only thing that will stand out in that plain will be Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be a mountain, a high mountain. And it won't be the same size as the mountain is today. You know, we talk about the Temple Mount, but Ezekiel's temple would not fit on the current Temple Mount. 
So this mountain's going to be an exceedingly high mountain. God is going to rearrange the whole geography of the Holy Land. So wherever you are in the land of Israel, you will look and you will see a city set upon a hill. And that city will be Jerusalem. And so there's going to be tremendous changes. And the fault lines and all the rest of it are in places. But even if they weren't, it wouldn't make any difference. God can do it. And he will. And so there's going to be uh, tremendous geographic changes at that time. And uh, I want to just talk about some of these changes. One of the things that really stands out to me is there's going to be a river out of Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. It says, And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea, in summer and in winter it shall be. Now when you compare that with Ezekiel 47, you'll find that this this water, it'll come actually out from the temple. And it'll start in a trickle and it'll get deeper and deeper and deeper and it will actually go into the Dead Sea and the waters of the Dead Sea will be healed. And it tells us that people will actually be fishing at En Gedi and catching fish. But then it says, and and it talks here about going to the, the former sea and the hinder sea, it's going to go to the Mediterranean as well. So there's going to be, finally, Jerusalem will be a capital city with a river. But it'll be a river with a difference. Because wherever it goes, it will bring healing and blessing. And in fact, there are going to be trees that will line the banks of the river. And it says the fruit of the trees will be for the healing of the nations. You say, well, why, why is that needed? And again, if you want reference, Ezekiel 47 will give you all the details you need to know about that river. Part of it is that anybody that goes into the tribulation that didn't go, uh, sorry, goes into the millennium, that did not arrive by a rapture or resurrection, will be like a Holocaust survivor. Right? You've been through the seven years of the worst history the world has ever known. You can't buy and sell unless you take the mark of the beast. So how are you going to eat? You're going through a time, you talk about global warming, the heat's going to be scorching, right? I mean, all these things, you read about in Revelation 6 through 19. So all those that survive, and who will be the ones that survive? Well, there'll be this third of the Jews that have not been exterminated by the man of sin, that have come through this purifying time. They will go into the millennial kingdom. There will be uh, the, the uh, great multitude that have been reached by the 144,000 witnesses and who will believe the message that the, the gospel of the kingdom, that the king is coming and prepare. And they will believe that message and many of them will survive the tribulation period and will go in, but they'll survive, but they will show the wear and tear of seven years of persecution. And then you've got this judgment in Matthew 25, the judgment of the living nations. And uh, you're very familiar with it. You know, you've probably heard it preached on in the past where it talks about whoever does this to the least of my brethren, he's done it to me. When I was in prison, you visit, you know, and we tend to think about that as, you know, kind of today, if I go to prison and visit somebody, that's what, well, I mean, you can take application from that. That's not really what it's saying. You see, his brethren are his brethren according to the flesh, the Jews. And true believers will show that they are true believers in the tribulation period because what they will do is they will shelter and care for the Jewish people at their own risk. 
And so when they visit them in prison, it will be visiting Jews that are in prison, about to be executed. When they, when they, they, they feed them when they're hungry or clothe them when they're naked, it will be these Jewish people that are going through such a period of persecution. And so it will be an opportunity for those nations... Uh, individuals within the nations that believe in the true God to express their belief in showing kindness to the Jewish people. And so all those are the groups that will go into the millennial kingdom. And they will need the leaves of the trees for the healing of the nations. I think there'll be a lot of healing. There'll be a lot of emotional healing. There'll be a lot of physical healing needed. And there'll be an abundant supply. Now, the interesting thing is when you compare... Uh, Ezekiel 47 with Revelation 21 and the description of the new heavens and the new earth, there's also a river there. And that river is also got living water and it also has trees for the healing of the nations. But there's a difference because in John's river, in the new heavens and the new earth, it doesn't flow into the sea because it tells us there's no more sea in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's clearly distinct. Really, the millennium, if you like, is, is the anteroom of eternity. Okay? In other words, it's going to give us a little glimpse of what eternity is like, but it's not eternity. But there'll be a lot of things that'll be parallel. <clears throat> but why would anybody in the new heavens and the new earth, or in what we call heaven, need to eat the fruit of the tree for the healing of the nations? Because we've just come through the millennium, right? So when we're in good shape, we're probably healthier than we've ever been. If now, of course, when I say we, we're all going to be raptured. We're not, I'm not talking about us, right? But I'm talking about those tribulation saints. <clears throat> so what's the point of that? I, I think it, in, th- in that context, it simply has the idea of the well-being. And one of the aspects of well-being is that Because of Adam's sin, you couldn't get into the garden. There were cherubim guarding the way, and you couldn't eat the tree of life. Could you? If you got anywhere near, the cherubim would just execute you. And when we're finally in glory, you can go up to the tree of life anytime you like. You can pick the fruit off it, throw it up, open your mouth and swallow it, and you can eat it to your heart's content. And what it's going to tell you is, look what God has wrought. Look at the privileged position we're in. Look at what God has done for us in Christ. And talk about having a tremendous effect. Isn't that, I mean, you think, I don't think you're even beginning to capture some of the things that are going to happen to us in the future. I'll say our future is bright. It really is. And, and so those things will be there. But let's just go back to this passage in chapter 14 because we're thinking about this river and it is really fascinating to me uh, that the, the, these living waters going out from Jerusalem. And then it says in verse 9, the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. One Lord and his name one. We've already mentioned it, but I think what a tremendous thought uh, that the Lord Jesus will truly be crowned at that day, king of kings and lord of lords. Don't you long for the vindication of the Son of God? It still galls me when I hear them say, we have no king but Caesar. It still galls me when, when I read that parable and it says, we will not have this man to reign over us. And you know what God says in Psalm 2? He says, yet have I set my king on my holy hill of Zion. 
God speaks about Christ reigning from Zion as if it's already happened. Yet have I set my king. It's so certain that Christ will reign from Jerusalem, the very place of his rejection, that God speaks about it as if it's already taken place. Because God's outside of time and it already has, right? Right? He's not, he's not bound by time. He, he sees the beginning from the end. And he knows that the day is coming when everybody, don't you just think about this, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I long for that day, don't you? Don't you think Osama bin Laden will bow the knee and acknowledge the Lordship of Christ? All, all these men that have hated him, that, that, the, the university professors in Berkeley that love to ridicule Christianity will one day bow the knee and acknowledge Jesus is Lord. Isn't that tremendous? I long for the vindication of the Son of God in the very place of His rejection. Isn't that a tremendous thing? These things are going to happen, and they are so certain God writes about it as if it's already happened. It says, verse 10, All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. It shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate to the corner gate from the tower of Hananiel to the king's winepress. All men shall dwell in it and there shall be no more utter destruction but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Jerusalem's not safely inhabited today, is it? As we're probably speaking at this moment, there's no doubt Katusha rockets fly, firing into the land of Israel. There's no peace there now. There won't be any peace there until Israel have acknowledged that Christ Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Then there'll be peace. Then there'll be peace on this earth. Then the thorny problem of Jerusalem will be solved. And it will be a peaceful place. And Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And then it tells us some very interesting things. One of the things we're going to find in the millennial kingdom is that some of the Jewish festivals will continue. Now, some of them won't. In fact, there's only three festivals that I can find uh, in Old Testament prophecy that will actually take place in the kingdom age. Passover will still be held. Except they won't kill a lamb, they're going to kill a bullock. You say, well, why? Why a bullock rather than a lamb? Well, if you understand the Levitical offerings, Leviticus 2 and 3, the bullock was the most expensive burn offering that anybody could bring. And it, and it kind of typifies the greatest apprehension or understanding of the person of Christ. Okay, So in other words, when we come and worship, some people, probably newly saved, they could just bring a couple of turtle doves, right? In other words, all they know is that God loves them and Jesus died for them, and that's it. And so they might stand up at the Lord's Supper, and what they'd say is, uh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving me. Okay, Very simple, right? It's a very kind of, and yet they're, they're older brethren, you've heard them. They get up at the Lord's Supper, and they can pray from Genesis to Revelation in King James English, every picture of Christ from the start to the end, and they never even draw a breath. Right? They have a, an amazing uh, understanding of the person of Christ and want to present that. We have a brother in our assembly, and he loves 
C.H. McIntosh and some of these old uh, writers, and he's always reading them. And yet he's kind of reserved and quite often doesn't share at the Lord's Supper. And so I emailed him recently, and I said to him, I said, Brother, you've at least two bullocks in your cupboard. When are you going to bring them out? Uh, I was away the Lord's Day that he came to the meeting, uh, but my wife said he offered one of his bullocks. And so the idea is that in that day, everybody, Jewish nation, everybody that will be in the millennial kingdom will have a tremendous understanding of who Christ is. And so there'll be a bullock offered. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread will still be kept. And then the Feast of Tabernacles will be kept. Tabernacles was the last festival in the Jewish calendar, and it was probably the most fun. That was the one where they built tents. They went camping just like we are. Well, some of us. But the, the idea was that you look back in God's past dealings with the nation. You remembered the wilderness wanderings. Remembered how God provided manna. Remember how God's goodness, despite our rebellion, was the picture of tabernacles. It was looking back and remembering. And how fitting in the millennial kingdom to be able to have a festival where we look back and remember all of God's dealings through the ages of history and see his goodness to us and his faithfulness. I'm glad we sang that, Great is Thy Faithfulness. One of my favorite verses. Uh, somebody was asking me the other day, what's it like to live by faith? And I said to him, I don't live by faith. I live by the faithfulness of God. It's a big difference, isn't it? And God is faithful. And we'll be able to, in, in the, the final thousand years of world history, there'll be this perpetual reminder of the goodness of God as we look back over his dealings in history. But interestingly enough, what it does tell us is that there will be those in the millennium because apart from the raptured saints, everybody else that goes into the millennium uh, will be will saved. There'll be no unsaved people going to the millennium. But, um, and they'll have children. And it'll be, a, it'll be a great world. There'll be lots of food. There'll be no shortages. There'll be good government. There'll be safety. People will make war no more. There'll be no military budgets uh, because swords will be, be uh, made into plowshares. And, and so it's just going to be a tremendous time to have a family. And you can have a family and, and no problem feeding them, right? And no bad neighborhoods. It's going to be a tremendous time. But what's going to happen is, just like when we're born again, our children don't necessarily get saved because we're saved. Now we all wish that all of our children were saved. But there's no guarantees. And in the millennial kingdom, there will be those that will be born during the millennium who will not be born again. And they will behave themselves because the Lord Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. So everybody will conform. I remember my kids when they were younger. They were good at conforming. When I told them to sit down, they sat down. But maybe they were standing up on the inside. Right? In other words, you can outwardly do the thing. But in your heart, you can still be doing something else. And there will be people that will do that. And they'll be rebellious in their hearts and at the end of the thousand years there'll be a great rebellion but it will even start before then because some will refuse to even come up to keep the feast of tabernacles and if you have no heart for god why would you want to be thankful for him and look back and think of his goodness and so there will be those and he talks about it here people from egypt that won't go up now uh, and they will well there'll be no rain on the land of egypt during that time uh, in order to 
to uh, discipline them for their failure to come to the Feast of Tabernacles. But I want you to look at Isaiah 19 because Egypt still have a future as well as Israel. It's kind of interesting uh, when you really look at uh, end time prophecy. You see some very interesting things. Look at Isaiah 19 verse 18. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. In that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. It shall be a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry to the Lord because of the oppressors and he shall send them a savior and a great one and he shall deliver them. And we could read on, but, but God has a future for Egypt in the millennial kingdom. Some think that perhaps it was because the Lord Jesus, when Herod was trying to slaughter the innocents, that the Lord Jesus found refuge in Egypt at that time. But there is a future. So anyway, um, our time is more than gone, and we haven't got to the end of the millennium, but at least we've got a glimpse of it. And of course, my wife would always say to me at the end of a message like this, so what? In other words, what, how does that affect me today? Well, I want to tell you something, that when it comes to end-time prophecy, all the chess pieces are on the board. No question in my mind, we're living in the last days. And the opportunity for you to live for the Lord Jesus is now. Because I'm expecting the trumpet to sound any moment. And so this, this is it. Don't wait too long to serve the Lord. I have a dear friend, and uh, he had great intentions of serving the Lord as a young man. And, uh, but he, his career really took off. But he still had these intentions, and he built himself quite a library that he was going to study and so he could be a help to the assembly. But his career just kept propelling upwards. And he did really well. But he said, well, when I retire, I'm going to serve the Lord. So he finally got to retirement age. Just about to begin, he had a stroke. Became blinded in one eye. The other eye already had cataracts, so he could hardly see at all. His library is intact, unopened. He is a man of one message, you know. You know what he preaches? He gets hold of young men by the scruff of the neck, and he says, Serve the Lord now! That's a great message, isn't it? Can I say to you, Jesus is coming. Your opportunity to live for him in the day of his rejection is today. Now is the time, isn't it, to serve the Lord with all your heart. And give him the best years of your life. Don't give him the dog ends of your life. Give him the best years of your life. Because life goes by real quick. It really does. So let's serve him. Because Jesus is coming. And just in closing we say this. We're thankful that the day is coming. When the long suffering of Israel will be over. And they will be the head of the nations. And all God's promises will be fulfilled to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. Not only that, there's coming a time when Jesus will be vindicated in the place of his rejection. So for those reasons, we say this, even so, 
Come, Lord Jesus. I hope that's your heart's desire. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this week we've had together. And we acknowledge that, in a sense, we're more responsible now than when we first came here. Because light brings responsibility. We know more of thy ways and thy will today than we did a week ago. And Father, you've said in your word, to whom much is given, much will be required. Father, we pray for each of us that we might not just leave this place and forget the things that we've heard. That we might purpose in our hearts to live with greater zeal for the Lord Jesus. We pray for holy boldness to speak to him or speak of him to a lost and dying world. We pray that we might deal with issues that need to be dealt with so there's nothing that would hinder our service for the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we we look to the day and we long for the day when our Lord Jesus will come. But we pray that we'd be faithful as he is faithful until that day. We'll give thee the glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.